Welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. There are lots of shows on how to improve, on how to become successful, but there is only one show on what to do once you are. This is essential because success itself can be a catalyst for failure, especially if it leads to the undisciplined pursuit of more. This show is about how to become successful at success. It's for high performers who are on the edge of exhaustion. It's for people who struggle with the curse of capability. It's important because what got you here is not what's going to get you there. So if you're a driven, hardworking, productive person who is running out of space, but still wants to make a higher contribution, the What's Essential podcast is designed especially for you. So let's get to it. I am here with Dr. Judson Brewer, who has achieved many things in life, best-selling author, tremendously successful TED Talk, 16 million views at last count, well worth anybody's time. It's called A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit. Uh, But now with a truly timely book and the subject, well, the primary subject of our conversation today, Unwinding Anxiety, you can find Dr. Judd, as he is uh, colloquially called, at drjud.com. That's D-R-J-U-D.com. Judson.brewer.9. That's at Facebook. Uh, and on Twitter, Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. Or at Instagram, at Dr. Judd. That's D-R period J-U-D. Uh, Dr. Judd, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Thanks for having me. In your TED Talk and also in Unwinding Anxiety, you make an interesting connection, uh, one that surprised you as a psychologist um, and also just as a, as, as a person when you made a connection between bad habits and anxiety that surprised you and I think will surprise lots of people listening to this. Do you want to just share a bit about the background for that and what your insight was? I'd be happy to. So as an addiction psychiatrist, my primary motive helping my patients with anxiety was medications. And, you know, you can even think of this back to the 80s when the first selective serotonin reuptic inhibitor, Prozac, was heralded as this big breakthrough. This is also about the same time that the Stones were singing about Mother's Little Helper. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper. That was about benzodiazepines. That's how much they were in free flow, let's say, back Mm. in the 70s and 80s. So people were looking for less addictive you know, medications and the Prozac equivalents were considered this big thing. When I went through residency, that's what I learned, give people medications. And I went on my merry way. Uh, so when I was doing research, uh, I study habit change. I studied neuroscience of how to really help people break bad habits. Somebody that was in one of our programs, we make these digital therapeutics, like these app-based mindfulness training programs. And somebody in one of our eating programs Uh, said to me, hey, you know, I'm realizing that anxiety is triggering me to eat. Can you make an anxiety program? And I was thinking, well, you know, I prescribe medications. I don't know what I can do. But as a scientist, as a researcher, I went back and looked at the literature. And lo and behold, back in the 80s, (laughs) there was this guy, Thomas Borkovec, who was studying anxiety. And he proposed 
that anxiety could be triggered and perpetuated just like any other habit through a process called negative reinforcement. And I think my eyes popped out of my head because <laughs> I never thought about treating anxiety as a habit. So I started looking into this. Lo and behold, there's a really solid theoretical basis for it. And we could create programs, you know, so we created this Unwinding Anxiety app, we studied it, and we actually found that we could get huge reductions in anxiety. Let me give you an interesting scenario and see what you make of it. Um, I have somebody who's a a long-time listener to the podcast, or at least has listened to, I think, every episode so far, and gave feedback. And one of the things that he said was, was really about a personal frustration that despite desiring to be an essentialist, desiring to focus on what's essential, eliminate what's not essential, get rid of all of this extra activity in their life, he isn't really doing it yet. So he has the desire. It's not a motivation problem. He's even investing some time in the effort. And so I just wanted to take the concern he just raised, bring it to you, and say, you know, is it possible that anxiety is driving not just what we would think of as especially bad habits, but just uh, unproductive habits, you know, overscheduling and saying yes to too many activities and and, and sort of this quintessential non-essentialism that this show is is so focused on addressing. So the short answer is yes, anxiety can be driving a lot of these things, and we might not even know that it is doing that. And I'll also Mm -hmm. add, and we can talk about this later if it's helpful, this reason and willpower-based approach to changing habits is, let's say, problematic in the least. Yeah, you're saying that he may be approaching this in a willpower way, and that's that's not going to work for him. So talk us through what this anxiety is, especially the hidden anxiety that you identify in unwinding anxiety. So generally speaking, there's this definition of anxiety that I find helpful, which is like this feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. Okay. And so we all know what it feels like. There's this contracted quality. It tends to feel restless and this and that. And that actually has some evolutionary origins. So when our, you can think of our old, you know, we have a survival brain that has two functions. What's essential to our survival brain is finding food and Mm -hmm. avoiding danger, right? Eating and not being eaten. Okay. That survival brain has layered on top of it, a new brain, literally called the neocortex. And part of that is called the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in thinking and planning. So it helps us survive in a different way through taking past experience, combining that with current information, and then projecting into the future, okay? When we don't have information, our brains start to get restless. They get uneasy. And they prod that prod is to get us off our butts to go get information, right? If you think of our ancient ancestors, we're out on a unfamiliar part of the savanna. We have to keep on high alert to see if there's danger there. We're gathering information. So information is literally food for our brain. And so that same mechanism is at play trying to help us survive. The problem is, and this is where anxiety comes in. The problem is when we don't have information or we don't have accurate information, 
I won't say things were easier for our ancient ancestors because I have no idea how easy they had it. Mm -hmm. But one thing that was different, let's say, is that all the information that they got was pretty accurate, right? There was no such thing as like a deep fake saber tooth tiger or you know, some, <laughs> somebody trying to, you know, suggest that saber tooth tigers were good or bad, and then we should agree with them or not, right? It was, you see the saber tooth tiger, you know that it's real, you run like heck, and you hope you don't get eaten, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we've got a huge amount of information, yet not all of it is accurate or essential. So we have to try to figure out all of that ourselves. And none of us are experts at everything. Our brains being these great prediction machines, are trying to say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? That's where anxiety comes in. Think of it as fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. You know, fear helps us survive. Uncertainty helps us survive. But in when we're not actually able to take that uncertainty and use it in a productive manner, our brains just start spinning out in anxiety. I love this. Fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. It's nice to have just the simple equation to be able to think through what's going on. Um, what's the, I mean, what does somebody do about this? If, if I'm experiencing anxiety, like we don't have to talk about this in the abstract. Um, I mean, you can walk me through it right now. I'm I'm always game for this on the show. Uh, you know, you, you can coach me, you can guide me if that's if that's one way of doing this, or in an alternative way. But like, I want to get to the actual tangible process and the tools for doing this because I'm sure just everybody listening to this is a standard deviation more anxious now than they were a year ago. Yes, yes. So, so yeah, talk us through like what what do I do about that? Yeah. And so this actually is why I wrote this book was I was seeing over and over in my clinic and in my research studies that there is actually a clear three-step process that's relatively straightforward. The first step I would say is to map out our habit loops, right? And in fact, I find this so essential that I, I just, as a psychiatrist, I want to help people. I just put out a, there's a PDF that we created this website, uh, mapmyhabit.com free. You, somebody can go there, free PDF, download it, and they can start mapping out their own habits. Okay. Okay, Dr. Judd, I have just gone and I have downloaded the principle you just described. I have it in front of me. Other people can do that as well. I'm looking at this. This is the first step. It's divided into three. I can see that three blue circles that all, you know, one leads to the other, leads to the other triggers, behavior, results. You want uh, us to map our habit loops. So let's do that real time. Okay. So let's start with the behavior because I think that's often the easiest place to start. Sometimes mm -hmm. the triggers are harder to notice. Okay. So let me ask you this. Uh, do you ever worry? Uh, yeah, I do worry. I don't think of myself as a worrier, mm -hmm. but... I think I might be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's use that as an example. So let's use that as the mental behavior. And I think I highlight that because worry is actually what drives anxiety as a habit. So anxiety, the feeling of anxiety can drive the mental behavior of worry, which then gives us a particular result or reward, which often is that it, it helps us avoid that unpleasant feeling of anxiety or it makes us feel like we're in control. So okay. we filled in the circle of 
worry as your mental behavior? Do you want to go back to what triggers you to worry? Is this sufficient for me just to write worry here? Is that that's a sufficient behavior? That is a sufficient behavior, absolutely. So what what for you might trigger you to worry? Uh, um, if I want to achieve something that's important to me mm-hmm. and I'm worried that it's not going to happen, you know, that I'm going to miss the goal, not achieve what I've set out to achieve, mm-hmm. uh, then I suppose the the trigger for me would be just not seeing a result that I want as fast as I mm. want it. Mm. Okay. Great example. Okay. So you don't see a result as fast as you want it. That triggers you to start worrying. So let me ask you then, mm-hmm. let's fill in the third circle. What do you get? What's the result of you worrying? How does that affect that, you know, your project, for example? I think I just jump into it. You know, I go, mm-hmm. okay, what can I do about it? But mm-hmm. sometimes that's not doing the most essential thing. You know, I might post something on social media because it's, it's consistent with, with the goal. Oh, no, you know, the more unproductive result would be to just go and look at posts that I've already put out and see what people have been responding to with it. Okay. So that has an immediate you know, feeling of progress or at least counterfeit of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would see that as being relatively unproductive uh, because it's not creating something new. It's not writing a new article. It's not, um, it's not doing something that will actually move the needle on the things I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. But it still is an instant way to, to feel like there's progress towards yeah. the goal. Okay, great. So now you've, you've filled in all three of those circles, right? The trigger, the behavior, and the result or the reward. So that's actually the first step in being able to change any, any habit, whether it's anxiety, procrastination, worry, or anything. The second step is in, involves our, well, all of these involve our brain. But the second step, I'm going to have to, I'll give a little bit of background of some of the neuroscience mm-hmm. of how this works. Mm-hmm. So the only way to change a habit is to change the reward value of the behavior. And what I mean by that is, you know, this process is called reward-based learning. And reward-based learning is based on how rewarding a behavior is. I'll give a, a simple example. So if, uh, if somebody as a teenager, uh, they want to rebel against their parents or they want to be cool at school, they start smoking, Okay. And so smoking can be pretty rewarding for them as a teenager and they are not getting emphysema. They're, you know, they're not having any of these health effects yet because it's a slow burn with cigarettes. And when they reinforce this process over and over and over, this gets set up as a habit. Their brain determines that it's got X reward value. And the only way to change that is to actually bring awareness in to help them see, is this as rewarding right now as it was when I was a teenager? So concretely, what I do is somebody comes to my clinic and wants to quit smoking, I have them pay attention as they smoke their cigarette. And I remember a guy coming in who'd been smoking 40 years. So he'd reinforced this process almost 300,000 times. (laughs) Yeah. So really deeply ingrained habit. And I said, well, what's it taste like? What's it smell like? 
And it, it was like this wow. transformative process where he's like, oh my goodness, I had no idea how bad this cigarette tasted. How did I not notice that before? Well, the short answer is habit, right? Our brain set up this reward value. And I call it set and forget. You set the value and forget about the details so that we can free up our brain space to do other things. How do I do that with the habit loop that we just identified? Yes. So the the thing to keep in mind here conceptually is that we've got to see, is it as rewarding as it was before? Is it more rewarding than it was before? Or is it less rewarding than it was before? So with worrying, we can ask ourselves, or you could ask yourself, does worrying actually make me, you know, does it keep my family safe? Does it get the project done? Does it solve the problem? And does it make me think more clearly? So let me ask you that, you know, any of those questions, if you ask you yourself those questions, how would you answer it? Okay. So just to clarify, you're, you're focusing on, not on the result, not on the thing that I go off and do as a result of the worry. You're asking me to look at the worry itself, whether the worry is helpful to me. Yes. The worry as the mental behavior is going to have some effect. It could be rewarding or it could be not rewarding. So what hmm. does the worrying get you? Well, I think that what the worrying gets me is the feeling that I'm not going to forget about this. I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm going to really lean into it. You know, if I'm worried, then I'm going to keep trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. When I was just talking to somebody about this, about a particular uh, major project for me. And I said, look, I think I'm feeling too worried, too anxious about this. And they said, well, I've worked with people in this situation before, and I'd actually rather they were more anxious than less anxious. And so in a sense, I found that to be um, confirming of this direction, but I myself still... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Still don't like it, don't feel good about it. You know, I feel a little contradictory, in fact, because I, I'm, I'm sure that it would be better if I was less anxious. But I think that's what it is. I think it comes yep. out perhaps of a, of, a, of a fear that you could just become, um, you, you know, just, oh, every, it'll, yeah, it'd Complacent. be fine. Complacency. Yeah. Which, yeah. which now that I say it out loud, I mean, <laughs> I don't do complacency. <laughs> I know. I bet you don't. Uh, and and I wish I not. I don't wish I was complacent. But uh, one of my best friends growing up um, was um, was someone who could feel contentment, mm-hmm. and I just never felt that. Okay. So it's a strange thing to hear myself describing all of this because I just think, well. Is this really likely to happen? Is it likely that I would fall into complacency? Not likely. Yes. So I could probably could relax and it would be fine. But even as I say that, there's something inside of me that goes, don't, don't yeah. relax about it. Yes. Yes. That's not how you're going to achieve this goal. Yes. So there's that's something inside of you. It's called a habit. Where if you if you've haven't really carefully examined that you can get things done without worrying, then your brain will say, Oh, this is this is familiar territory. This is my comfort zone. Ironically, 
anxiety is my comfort zone. And I'm, I'm going to say this, there's a concept around performance anxiety that is pervasive. And it sounds like the person you are working with has totally, I don't say, want to say bought into that, but they believe that this is what society believes is that if I'm not anxious, I'm not going to perform well. And to the point where that person was saying, Hey, you know, I'd prefer that you be anxious than not anxious. What I would say is let's clone you and do the parallel experiment and say, let's take the anxious you, let's take the non-anxious you that sounds pretty passionate about your goals and see two things. One, which one is more fun to do? And two, which one lets your prefrontal cortex stay online and function better? Because we do know from the research that anxiety makes our thinking brain go offline. So we actually don't perform as well. And I actually wrote a whole section in this book because there's this myth about performance anxiety out there that went back to this study of Japanese dancing mice from 1908 that became this law. It's called this Yerkes-Dodson law that has no (laughs) real empirical evidence showing that increased anxiety increases performance. In fact, 10 times more studies have shown a negative relationship between anxiety and performance than have shown a a relationship where any amount of anxiety is helpful. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Right. That makes sense. And I think that's what we were just getting to is that as I imagine, I love this idea of the cloning experiment and <laughs> looking at those, the two versions of ourselves and as a thought experiment, imagining which would perform better. I like that. I can see that the lower anxiety version, I can believe that that version would perform better. Mm-hmm more confidently, um, more creatively, mm-hmm. a little bolder, uh, enjoy the process more, yeah. um, help to encourage people to, 
to come and join the party, yes. so to speak. Like, hey, here's, here's what good things are happening instead of sending out fear vibes, anxiety vibes through something. I mean, I can, I can construct that story, mm-hmm. and I like that. Okay. But then, given what you just said about how stepping out of anxiety can produce anxiety, how do you trick the brain or break the habit there so that you can actually not have a thought experiment about this, but actually make the shift. Right. So the key here, and the reason we focus so much on this step is because this is a step that our brains don't want to do. They don't want to believe that anxiety may not actually be helping us because it's so familiar, so comfortable. The first, so first step is mapping it out. The second step is determining just how helpful anxiety or worry in this case, in the example that we're using is. And if we can see that worrying isn't helping us, what that does is that lowers the reward value of worrying as a mental behavior in our brain. When that reward value is lowered, it makes it easier to step out of it. Okay. So that's step two, but step three gets to what you're talking about. Step three is what I call bringing in the BBO, the bigger, better offer. Because our brains are based on reward hierarchies, they're going to pick a behavior that's more rewarding than another behavior. Not only can we help our brain see how unrewarding worrying is so that it becomes lower on the hierarchy, we can also tap into things that we naturally have that feel better. One of my favorites there is curiosity. Can I back up for a second? Sure. When you say I've got to lower the reward value of the behavior of, mm-hmm. in this case of worry. Okay. I get the logic and I also get why you want to get to step three. That's a, that's a key element for how to do it because you're giving a contrast to the brain. Is there a specific tool or tactic that we can use to actually lower that value? Can you yes. walk me through a tool for how I could do that? Yes, it's pretty simple. And there's only one that I'm aware of that actually does this. It's awareness. So really, we just have to be aware of how rewarding or unrewarding the behavior is. So if I'm overeating, I need to become aware of what it feels like when I overeat. If I'm smoking, I need to become aware of what it tastes like, what it smells like to smoke a cigarette. If I'm worrying, just like you did just now, We need to become aware of what the results are of worrying. Oh, maybe this doesn't actually help me think better. Okay. And do you have a specific process for how I can do that? Are you saying I've already done that in this conversation? Or is there something I can specifically do? I can write down what? Make that as tangible for me as possible. There's a simple question that I have the patients in my clinic ask themselves. You ready? Yep. What do I get from this? Okay. What do I get from this? Is it better to write the answer down? Take a few minutes to write it down. Do you take a log as you're going through the experience or are you just doing it from memory right now spontaneously? So if somebody is right in the throes of worrying, it's a great time to, you know, in the moment, ask themselves, what am I getting from this? So they could write the question down on a piece of paper to concretize it, or they could simply ask themselves, you know, what am I getting from this? If they're on a bus or in a car and they're noticing that they're worrying, they can feel into their direct experience and they can see, is this worrying 
making me feel calm or is it making me feel more anxious? Is this worrying solving the problem or is it just rehashing it over and over in my head? So both the intellectual pieces, but most importantly, the felt experiential pieces. What am I getting from this? What's the direct result? And for a lot of people, worry just makes them feel more anxious. Okay. So what do I get from this? We talked a little bit about that in terms of getting a sense of, well, this will keep me engaged. This is, this is how I'm not going to completely fail. Um, you know, those would be that those would be the, the, the benefits. That's what it's doing for me. So it seems right. Because we haven't actually proven that it is helping us. Right. Again, the cloning experiment would prove whether that's true or not. If we want to look at the science, the science would suggest the opposite. So even beyond the intellectual piece, right? So if I've worried about a problem for two days, has all of that worrying actually helped me solve the problem? Generally, no, because we can't think as well when we're worried. But even more concrete than that, we can drop into our direct experience and ask ourselves, okay, I've been worrying all day. How do I feel? Do I feel more energized or do I feel exhausted from worrying? Is this worrying just perpetuating more worry? Okay, so you're asking me to to not just estimate what I think it does for me. You're trying to say what does it actually create in my experience? What 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 experience is this producing for me? Yes. So the best way for our brains to learn is through immediate and accurate feedback. So we can estimate things, we can intellectualize things, but they may or may not be true because all of that goes through the filter of how we perceive the world. What, what is more concrete and more real is how it feels right now. Okay. So when I feel the worry that we're describing, I mean, I would say the feeling is a not enjoyable feeling. There you go. I can even have a day, which in fact is quite regular right now, where um, lots of good things are happening. But by the end of the day, I still feel a bit drained by the experience of it. Yes. Because... I'm worried about the gap between where things are today and where I want them to be at this set time in the future. Yes. So I, I do think now, especially as we talk about it, that I am aware of this discomforting feeling, this exhausting experience. Um, I don't like that. I want to change that. I don't feel clear about how to change that, but I guess that's what you're saying with step three, because step two is more to do with the interrupt, to recognize the cost of the current habit loop. Uh, and now there's, I need to now present to my mind, to my brain, that there's an alternative, a better way forward. Yes, is that right? Absolutely. So I suppose that leads us to this third area, this BBO. Will you lead us through that process? So our brain is always looking for that bigger, better offer, something that is more rewarding than the old behavior. If we see that the old one is not rewarding, that helps it move down on the reward hierarchy, but we still need something better. Here we look for intrinsically rewarding behaviors. So we can certainly distract ourselves or drink alcohol or binge on Netflix for so long, but those only provide brief relief and they don't actually solve the problem. So if worrying, for example, is the mental behavior that we're targeting here, we can bring in what I think of as a superpower uh, of our brain, 
which is curiosity. And the reason I say curiosity is my lab's actually done studies to see, you know, how rewarding certain mental behaviors are or mental states are. And not surprisingly, worry, frustration, anxiety, those all rank pretty low on that hierarchy. They don't feel very good. But on, on the far end of the other end, things that feel really good are things like kindness and curiosity. So here, you know, if we need to be motivated to do a project, for example, well, let me ask you, you you'd said that worry can feel like it motivates people. Certainly, it makes us feel restless and driven. Does curiosity also help you get something done, but does it pull you in in a different way? Yes, I suppose I can see that. And I like, I like the thought of it. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what I would be curious about to create the antidote for the worry. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying conceptually. But do you have any specifics of what questions I should ask that would that would help curiosity specifically to address the worry that I have? Let's address worry head on. So if worry is the old habit, we can be we can take a moment and just feel into our bodies and ask ourselves, where do I feel that worry or where do I feel that anxiety in my body? Okay. So if you can just feel into that, I don't know if you feel enough worry right now or enough anxiety, but just see if you can bring some up. Think of a time recently when you've worried. And then you can ask yourself this question. Is it more on the right side or the left side of my body? Okay, I think more on the right side of my body. Okay, okay. The answer doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But what I just asked you to do was to check, right? Hmm, is it on the right side or the left side? So that in itself, did that spark any curiosity for you? Yes, I would say it puts me in a different state. You know, I can anticipate from that that simply changing the state from a state of worry to curiosity is an improvement. Um, so it doesn't change the situation. It doesn't change what I'm worried about, right. but right. puts me in a better state right. if I have to deal with it. Which is exactly the point. So this isn't about magically fixing whatever the issue is. It's about putting our brain in the state to be able to function most efficiently and most productively. Worry decreases that our ability to think and plan. Curiosity mm-hmm. opens us up. And you, it's mm-hmm. interesting. You mentioned it puts me in a different state. If I Let me ask you. Does which one feels more closed, worry or curiosity, like closed down and contracted? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I sync with you on what you're saying that if I'm worried, you tend to think of fewer options. Um, it reminds me of Barbara Fredrickson's work on the broaden and build theory that if you're, if you're in a state of positive emotions, it increases your sense of optionality and lots of positive elements come from that. Give me, if you have them, other specific questions that I can ask to put myself in a state of curiosity. So here, I I think questions, and people can personalize these, but so you could personalize this for yourself. It's really any question that helps us turn toward or open to our experience in this moment, 
right? So if we're having worried thoughts, we can get curious, huh, what thoughts am I having right now? Okay. And that curiosity, and not judging them or trying to say, this is a good thought, this is a bad thought, but simply asking, huh, what thought is going through my head right now? Or how many times has this played through my head as this tape played itself? Yeah. So we create space between what's happening and, and us. Yes. We we get to be the observer. Hmm. I like that. And how does this speak to this idea of the bigger, better offer? Is there something beyond what we've covered that actually provides a bigger, better offer? Or is the curiosity itself the bigger, better offer? So two things there. Yes, curiosity itself is the bigger, better offer. And we can find that that falls within a category of bigger, better offers. So where anxiety feels closed and contracted, states that help us open up, right, move us into growth mindset, for example, feel better. So my lab's actually done studies where we've looked across, you know, all these mental states to see which ones are closed, which ones are open. And so we can find different states that actually, and different practices that can help us open up. I like curiosity because it's something that we all have, something that we we kind of were really good at when we were kids and we kind of forgot about, but we can reawaken it, you know, with the Mm. things that we talked about. But there are other things like kindness. I'm really intrigued by this idea of a continuum of states from one side that's so closed and then on the other side, so open. And I'm wondering if you could walk through your research and identify specific states along that continuum. Sure. So we looked at about 14 different states, and we looked at uh, just a general population. This was a study of several hundred people. Mm. And we found that the most closed state that was reported was anger. Okay followed by, so this is most closed to most open. So it goes anger, worry, frustration, avoidance, uh, fear, craving, anxiety, and those are all closed states. Hmm. And then it moves to the more open states. So excited, curious, content, connected, grateful, relaxed, and at the very top of the list, joyful and kind. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really fascinating list and a really uh, helpful thing. So, I mean, if I contrast the extremes, we have anger is the most extreme to the one side and kindness the most extreme to the other. And there's something that feels intuitive about that, even though it's nice to actually have it laid out in the way that you've laid it out. What are things we can do instantly to snap out of these closed states Mm -hmm. and shift into these open states? So I would say it depends on what the closed state is, where we can kind of find the antidote that fits best, best with it. But these, again, go into two general categories. So I think of as curiosity and kindness. Hmm. So if I'm in a state of fear, what can I do to immediately change that state into a more open one? So fear generally is a pretty short-lived state, right? So let's say we 
we were walking down the sidewalk. We're staring at our phone. We step out into the street without looking both ways. We hear a car honking. We instantaneously jump back onto the sidewalk. And then we have this fearful response. Boom. Oh, I could have been killed. From In that moment, fear can actually help us learn. So what we do with it in that moment is critical. If we go, oh, and get curious, like, oh, what can I learn from this? I could have been killed. Maybe I should remember to look both ways. Fear has done its job, which is to help us not get killed, right? And we've learned something. Mm -hmm. So fear is actually a useful survival mechanism. What we do with fear on top of it is optional and often problematic. So if we keep rehashing that in our head, oh, I can't believe I'm an idiot. Oh, what did I do? Why did I do that? Why didn't I look both ways? Or, you know, do I have a death wish? <laughs> you know, there are many different things that we can do where we're actually reliving that fear and, you know, chewing that up and turning, digesting that into anxiety. So fear helpful, anxiety not so much. So with fear, we can just get curious. Oh, what did I do? What can I learn from this? You know, can I bow to this as a teacher almost as compared to saying, oh, I'm an idiot. Why did I do that? Mm -hmm. And if I'm feeling frustration, what is the, the tactic that I can use in that moment to reframe it into a more open state? So with frustration, because it feels closed, what we do is inject the antidote of something that feels more open. So if I'm frustrated, I like to use the antidote of curiosity because you can't have binary opposites happening at the same time. You can't be closed and open. So if I'm frustrated, then I would ask these same questions that we went through earlier around what does, you know, around anxiety, what does frustration feel like in my body? Can I get curious about what that feels like? And can I also see, you know, what is it that I'm, you know, am I, well, let's just leave it at that. You know, so what does, what does that frustration feel like in my body? Mm. Dr. Judd, what haven't I asked that I should have asked? I think we've covered a lot of territory. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's been a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for approaching the subject today in a different way. Uh, by applying it, I suppose, as a type of intervention uh, for me and my challenges uh, on behalf of those that are listening, I think it's helped us to be able to, to wrestle this beyond the concepts as useful as those are, how we would put this into practice in our lives. Uh, you've done a, a great service to me and to this community and to this podcast uh, and of course, we'll continue to make a great contribution in the world. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Dr. Judge. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.